There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Last week, Greg, you weren't here and Steve Molina sat in and did a bit with me on entertainment advice. You missed out on one. Well, I'm sorry. I'm listening to it. (laughs) (laughs) On to the show today. As I said, we're going to talk about bull and bear market cycles. Get into what those are, a little bit of the history of them and how to deal with them. For sure. And one of the things that investors have to become comfortable with is the history of market cycles. Because in order to be a successful stock investor, you have to be able to understand that these cycles occur on a regular basis, why they're called cycles. They're not all good cycles, and sometimes they're bad. And and that's why we'll get into the definition of what bull and bear markets are, and understand some of the history around how long they last. And try to give people some comfort in the fact that what we're going through right now, it's unusual because of the cause. There hasn't been a global pandemic since 1918, but it's not unusual in terms of how the market has been reacting. So, Sorry to cut you off. You and I were talking a little bit earlier about, imagine if you were born in like 1910, all of the issues you would have dealt with in your, in your life. That's right. Yeah. So you had the global Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 around the same time that the First World War was just ending. You had the Great Depression, which makes this recession, although very difficult for anyone who's, who's suffering with a lack of jobs and so on, but it was certainly a terrible time to be growing up in 1929 and on from there. The Second World War. You just so, nailed them all. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, but it's an unusual time and lots of difficulties for people, and we just hope that we get through it quickly. And so leading into discussion of market cycles, one of the things that everyone's going to hear a lot about, of course, are bull markets or bear markets. So first of all, what is a bull market? So a bull market, that term can apply to any financial market. It's most commonly used with regards to the stock market, but you can certainly have bull markets in bonds, real estate, currencies, anything that's traded can be in a bull market. So the other thing to remember is that most markets are always in a state of continuous flux. They go up one day, they go down the next day. But a bull market occurs when the prices rise consistently over long periods of time, months or maybe even years. And very often when these bull markets are happening, they're not really identified. So you don't necessarily look at it and say, hey, we're in a bull market right now until you look back and say, wait a second, as many of us did the last time since 2009, Around 2015 or so, we started to realize that we had been in a bull market for six years already. And that became the longest bull market in history, right? That's right. When we talk about the period from 2003 to 2007, for example, there was a bull market. We were in it then. We know that now. The S&P was rising steadily after the previous decline that ended in 2002. But as the 2008 financial crisis hit, the bull market ended and the market started declining. So after the great financial crisis, as it's now called, 
That was followed, as you mentioned, by the longest bull market in U.S. stock market history. That started in basically March of 2009. March 9th, 2009. And lasted until March 11 of 2020. So definitely that was a long time. Also, different market sectors can experience bull markets at different times. So you might have bonds, commodities, futures, foreign exchange markets, and various ones of those could be in bull markets at any point in time when one of the other sectors is not. Whenever the demand for securities or a group of securities outweighs the usual supply, then you do tend to get prices being pushed higher. And that's certainly uh, something that turns into a bull market in one definition of bull markets, or at least bullish sentiment, is when at least 80% of all stock prices are rising over an extended period of time. And another indicator that's sometimes used is if the market indexes rise at least 15%. There have been different bull markets on different things, as you said, but some of the more famous ones like tulip mania. I mean, chat about that for a minute. This is going back to, I can't remember, was it the 1600s? or uh, 1760 or something like okay. that. Okay. And for some reason, there was a run on tulips in Holland. And the prices of tulip bulbs rose to ridiculously high levels, all on speculation, of course. There was no fundamental improvement in, in valuations. But these kind of manias can occur, and often they'll result in bull markets. And often when there's no fundamental valuation basis for it, they can end just as rapidly as they began. Or what about the Fort McMurray housing crisis early in this decade? Yeah, there was that too. And that basically followed on a bull market in oil and gas prices. And so, of course, leading up to 2007 into 2008, if you recall, oil prices spiked at something like $123. While other parts of the market were doing well at the time, but certainly energy prices and oil stocks, oil and gas stocks, were in a very strong bull market, which ended abruptly when oil started coming down from $123. So a bear market is just the opposite of a bull market. You can determine whether you're in a bear market in a number of different ways. So one method basically says a bear market occurs when there's at least a 20% decline from the highest level, the highest level previously. It's interesting because if you think back to 2018, if anybody recalls, stocks were doing extremely well going into the middle of 2018. And by December 24th, Christmas Eve of 2018, stocks were down 19.9% from their highs. So to some people, that wasn't officially a bear market because it wasn't 20%, it was 19.9%. But for the rest of us, it felt like a bear market. So the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, they use the 20% decline as a definition for a bear market. So if you want to look at recent examples and what's on everybody's mind right now, the most recent example of a bear market we experienced in all markets in, in the world, essentially, in March. But if you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it entered a bear market on March 11th, 2020. So this was the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. The highest value in the previous 52 weeks was 29,551 on the Dow Jones. When the value dropped to 23,553 on March 11th, it was more than a 20% drop from the most recent high. And I believe that at the bottom on March 23rd, I think the markets were down about 34%. Yeah, somewhere just around 18,000 points or something like that. Yeah, that's right. So the average length for a bear market is about 367 days. And from 1900 to 2008, 
Bear markets occurred every three years for a total of 32 times. Now, of course, we just said that back in following the global financial crisis, we went for 10 years, 11 years, I guess, without a bear market. So it was really an unusual time. Well, I was curious where the term bear and bull market even came from. And so I looked it up on this thing called Google. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, <laughs> Might have to put a disclaimer in there <laughs> for that one. And what it tells us is that it's based on how these animals attack. I wasn't aware of. So a bull thrusts its horns up into the air while a bear will swipe down. I had no idea. Yeah, they took the metaphorical meaning and moved it into the market. And luckily, we didn't have to experience either of those to understand why they got these names. Yeah, exactly. But there's different causes of market cycles. And I know Fidelity posted a paper or an article just in June of 2020, so just a month or so ago. And in it, they reference these four distinct phases. So there's the early cycle, mid-cycle, late cycle, and recession. And before I get into that, I looked at some other information that was posted by a company called Russell Investments, which we're familiar with. And Russell pointed out that on average, the U.S. stock market peaks six months before the start of a recession. So that's interesting. And that the market tends to recover quickly after the recession, returning on average 23.5% in the 12 months following the end of a recession. So you get a lot of bang for your buck coming out of a recession, I guess, is what it's telling us. And it also tells us that the markets are forward-looking. So when you see the markets enter a bear period six months before a recession happens, I mean, that's when you're expecting corporate earnings to decline and earnings being one of the bigger factors in determining overall valuations of stock prices. It sort of makes sense that the market as a whole is looking ahead and expecting declines in earnings or declines in economic activity. And so that's why they often say it is a forward-looking indicator. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that the stock market has recovered so much in the last few months based on what happened in March that it seems a little odd because it makes sense that in March, everybody stopped producing everything. So technically, we entered a recession almost immediately. There's no GDP activity or anything like that. But then the stock market, it just points out, for those that don't know, the stock market and the economic cycle don't always go at the same speed. That's right. Yeah. And again, because the market's forward looking and there's lots of reasons and it may even be the subject of a different podcast because there's so much going on right now. But I think what's happening is that what was unusual this time around is the response of central governments and central banks around the world. So when you're talking about putting $5 trillion of stimulus, as they did in the US, well, that makes up for a whole lot of lost GDP. If the market is confident that the recovery will be relatively quick and that a lot of the lost GDP will be recovered through the stimulus packages, then there's a, clearly an argument that the worst will be behind us in, in six months. It's like a market cycle on steroids. Absolutely. That's right. As I say, the early cycle, so this is basically when things recover from a recession. So economic indicators such as what we talked about, gross domestic product and industrial production, they just move from a negative to a positive area as growth is accelerating. And, and that makes sense. And there's more credit available to companies, monetary policy aid, and there's just rapid profit growth in the uh, corporate sector. So business inventories would be low and sales grow significantly. So that's coming out of a recession in the early cycle. Then we get to the mid-cycle, which is the longest phase of the cycle. 
in that, things sort of settle out. Credit growth is strong. Profitability is healthy. Good monetary policy, which we'll get into monetary policy and fiscal policy on another show. But that leads us into the late cycle, where basically economic activity has reached its peak. It implies that growth remains positive, but it's slowing. And that would align with what I mentioned earlier about how, on average, the U.S. stock market peaks six months before the start of a recession. As we get into the recession, while everything contracts, I mean, profits decline, there's job loss, etc. But the question I guess I wanted to look at, if we know all that, that markets move in cycles, the economy moves in cycles, and they don't move at the same speed, but they're correlated, how long do bear markets last and how deep do they go? Because this, this last one in March to April, I mean, it lasted a month. But in history, how long have they taken? So from, I don't know, I looked at from, let's see, this was from CBS News. It was posted a year ago. On average, bear markets have lasted 14 months in the period since World War II. Now, I want to point out something, Greg. You and I are using sort of conflicting numbers here and there, but it's only because different time periods will have different numbers for sure. Yeah, so we're not trying to data mine. We're just taking the evidence from the articles that we've chosen. So on average, it lasted 14 months since World War II. That's a bear market. Market corrections have lasted an average of five months. So the S&P 500 index has fallen on average 33% during bear markets in that time. So the biggest decline since 1945 occurred which in the global credit crisis that you mentioned. Everybody's familiar with that one. It gets talked about a lot. And during that period, I believe the S&P 500 was down approximately 50% from its high. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> yeah. But it leads into then the next bull market. On average, how long do they last? And so the average length of a bull market, again, from the article I found from CBS News, says they last 1,003 days or 2.75 years on average. Now, that was also data I found from a company called Hartford Funds. It was published in December of 2019. So then I wanted to look at, well, how does Canada's data compared to the U.S. data. So I looked at an article from RBC, and it said that since 1956, there have been 14 bull markets in Canada, the average gain being 79% and lasting for 34 months. But in the same period, there have been 13 bear markets. So there have been almost as many bull markets as there have been bear markets since 1956. And I know we're going to get into some data that's a little newer than that, but in the U.S., the average bull market lasted 2.7 years, which is just what I talked about before. The average bear market lasted 9.5 months. And people often talk about the fact that the markets go up about twice as much as they go down, meaning that in terms of time duration, they're going up two-thirds of the time and going down one-third of the time. But what's interesting is when you talk about the average length of a bull market being something like 2.7 years, and we've just gone through the last bull market we went through lasted for 11 years, you can see how unusual that was. And just because things are unusual, it doesn't mean they can't happen because clearly we know they can happen and they did. But it is kind of an interesting fact. Isn't it kind of like in Calgary when we had the one in 400 year flood followed the next year by the one in 50 year flood? That's right. Yeah, exactly. And just because you've had one doesn't mean you won't have another one. That's just the laws of probability. Let's talk about bonds for a little bit because we don't hear a lot about bear markets in bonds. And I'm not even sure that there is such a thing, given that I'm not sure that there's ever been a period of time when bonds 
have declined 20%. And, and that's kind of what you'd expect because bonds, of course, are a much a less volatile asset class. We have lower expected returns and we have lower volatility associated with it. But it doesn't mean the bonds can't have negative years or negative periods. So in Canada, since 1980, the Canadian bond index has only had two negative years. That was 1994, where bonds were down about 4.3% or so, and 2013, when bonds were down about 1.2%, just as measured, again, by the, the universe index. So when you think about it, I mean, gee, that's not too bad. It would be fantastic to say that about stocks. Oh, gee, the worst market in the last 40 years, we were down 4.3%. But it highlights why bonds are such a good non-perfectly correlated asset class to include in your portfolio because they do tend to add that stability to your stock portfolios. And we don't have the data here, but I know we've talked about it. When the stock market is down, like you pointed out in 2008, 2009, down 50 some odd percent, the bond market had a positive year. It did. And I think it was about positive by about 7% or so. So it wasn't a little bit positive. It worked out very well. And the thing too about negative years in bonds is just that when you look at 1994, and I remember 94 quite clearly, there was a rapid run-up in interest rates. I believe interest rates were hiked nine times or something in a short period of time, resulting in that negative return for bonds. But in 1995, I believe the bond market rebounded with something like a 20% plus return in 1995. And so certainly things can turn around quickly. When you look at the U.S. data for bonds... The U.S. long-term government bond index had nine negative years in the last 40, so starting in 1980. And most of those years were pretty modest with the exception of 2013 when the long-term bond index was down 12.8% and the 2009 when the long bond index was down 14.9%. Now, one of the things to keep in mind when we're talking about U.S. long-term government bonds is these will be the most volatile of all of the bonds in a typical index. Okay, so these are bonds with long maturities and relatively low coupons, and therefore they'll be the most responsive to changes in interest rates. And so as interest rates were rising in 1994 and 2009 coming out of the recession, we did get some pretty negative return on the long-term bond index. But if you looked at more of a uh, universal index like the Canadian index, which includes both short-term and long-term bonds as well as corporate bonds, it wouldn't be that bad. So let's just take a look at some of the stock market bear markets. As we've talked about a little bit in Canada, since 1980, there's been 12 negative years. But during that time, there's been seven bear markets in Canada. The worst, of course, being 2008, when the market was down 33%. And by the time March of 2009 rolled around again, we were down about 50%. In the U.S., the S&P 500 had seven negative years. Of those four were bear markets, seven negative years in total, but again, the worst being in 2008. That's since 1980. Since 1980. So again, just going back 40 years. So what happened to the market after the worst equity bear market since 1980? So that being the global financial crisis. So if you remained invested in Canada after the 2008-9 bear market, your return was 7.9% per year leading up to February of this year. Not bad, 7.9% a year. In the U.S., the S&P 500 return was 13.1% per year. For 11 years. For 11 years straight. 
So again, just highlighting one of the things we've talked about previously, and that is diversification. It just shows how important it is to be globally diversified because results can be broadly different in different parts of the world. So how does this relate to where we are currently? So all we can really do is look at history. We know that markets, at least historically, have always recovered from previous bear markets. This time around, we had the fastest bear market in history, took about a month, followed by the fastest bull market in history, another month. So it doesn't mean it's over. It just means that we can only know with certainty when we look back and, and what next year is going to bring, we'll find out. Yeah. It's easy to look back. You know, everybody always says, I knew that was going to happen or I, I saw that coming, but it's just not true, right? No, no. That's a common behavioral bias that we all have. That's hindsight bias and it affects us all. And I get it just as much as anyone else. Yeah, and we're going to actually have a professor of behavioral finance on our show in a couple of weeks, so I won't ruin the surprise with that one. But what do investors do during bull and bear markets? Well, Dimensional Fund Advisors put out a paper in 2018 about what they called the enduring investment philosophy. So basically, they talk about there's a relationship that can be described in a formula, because these are academic people, of course, so they use formulas to describe relationships. <laughs> but the event plus response equals outcome, or E plus R equals O. So what that simply means is that an outcome can be either positive or negative, of course. The result is how you respond to an event, so not just the result of the event itself. So in this case, the event would be coronavirus. The response could be, do I stay invested? Do I sell out? Do I try to get back in? There's a whole bunch of variables that you could choose as your response, and that could lead to very different outcomes. So what they're trying to point out is that, look, we have no control over bull and bear markets. Like It's not like in February you had a bunch of investment strategists talking about, well, with the upcoming global pandemic, we should move 50% to cash and wait for markets to fall on March 23rd. If only. It just doesn't work that way. So I like this relationship, this event plus response equals outcome, because it's where I hear it and where you've heard it from others, we do get the odd call from investors that say, I just need to get out. And this is something that Steve and I talked a little bit about last episode, was just this idea that we're surrounded by entertainment advice. We're surrounded by headlines and noise. And they just highlight the current crisis as it's going to go on forever. It's never going to get better. And so it does lead people to think, well, maybe I just need to get out. Yeah, that is how the news organizations, you know, sell advertising is they make it sensational. And I'm pretty sure if they came out and said, look, everything's fine. There's nothing to worry about. Yes, this is going to go away. So just sit tight. They wouldn't sell much advertising. No, nobody be, would buy it. <laughs> there'd be no reason to watch. But when these people call in or, or when we speak to them and they talk about need to sell out because I'm scared or, or they don't even use the word scared. I just need to sell out. I want to wait for markets to get better. That's how it's usually phrased. What we hear is, so you want to sell low and buy back when it's higher. Exactly the opposite of what we try to get people to do. Right. So in that response, event plus response equals outcome, you're going to have a different outcome. Exactly. So Greg, what does it all mean? Like, what have we learned today about this? Like we've gone on and on about bull and bear markets and various items, but what does it mean? Well, and I think our listeners will probably be hearing a lot of this in our episodes. In the end, how do you deal with it? Knowing that we're going to go through periods of bear markets and bull markets, how do you deal with that? And we believe the answer is to, first of all, have a plan and stick to it. And we talk about having a plan, we mean having a financial plan, 
where you clearly identify your goals, what you want to accomplish in your lifetime that requires planning money and time, having numbers attached to that, and having an investment plan that will deliver the kind of returns, not that you want, but that you need in order to achieve your financial goals. We have to have the right asset mix. We've got to put the right amount of risk in the portfolio, regardless of what the market is doing at the moment, because a long-term strategic plan is focused on the long-term. And if you try to adjust it as you go along, you're just getting into the very difficult game of market timing, which we're pretty sure is a difficult game to master. And the last thing is you want to rebalance the portfolio regularly, whether it's quarterly, semi-annually, or annually. We just want to make sure that we are always on track with our strategic asset mix that we've determined based on all of the work we've done previously with planning and that kind of thing. So by rebalancing regularly, you actually capture small amounts of return over time. When aggregated together, that can make a big difference over a long period of time. So that's it. There you have it. Well, that was fun. Let's wrap this up with some more fun. What are you doing these days? Well, as you know, I just had the pleasure of driving to Winnipeg, Manitoba last week. I'm sorry, pleasure and driving to Manitoba (laughs) don't seem to go together. You know what, actually, I mean, regardless of your views on on the prairies or any of the prairie towns that we drove through, I drove by my hometown of Regina, spent a little time at the uh, cottage in the old family cottage in Saskatchewan, which is now a new family cottage. And we visited my in-laws on the way back through Saskatoon. It was actually a pretty good trip. And I have to say, while I wouldn't want to spend too many days driving across the prairies, there is something pretty nice about just these wide open spaces and the endless skies and things like that. So not bad for a couple of days driving anyway. Yeah. Isn't that that old joke? If your dog runs away, you can watch it run for four days or... That's right. It's pretty, it's pretty, we can joke about it because we're both from Saskatchewan. That's right. And nobody else can say anything negative about it. (laughs) And what have you been up to? I've just been getting through this. Raising teenagers during coronavirus is, is a challenge in its own. And so thank goodness, as we were talking earlier, that as of right now, it looks like schools will be back open in the fall. And that'll be a big relief to anybody who has uh, school age kids that have been home since March. Yeah, it'll shake things up for a lot of people for sure. Listen, I guess that does it for today. So thanks for joining us on the free lunch. What's our saying? That's our tagline. It's there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, except maybe this show. Exactly. All right. (laughs) See you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.